Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis 41. Genesis 41. I have to bear with my cough a little this morning. These things happen to me sometimes, and I try not to let it bother you, and I won't think about it. But <clears throat> We'll be looking at this whole chapter, although it is a bit lengthy. <clears throat> it's a story that we'll read here. You know, we probably all know people who are uh, great, uh, what we might call them big picture people, people that have vision, people that dare to dream of things that no one has ever thought of. They just live life in big sweeping strokes. But we all know that often if those people didn't have someone to follow them around and take care of all the details, they would probably run their car out of oil and overdraw their checking account for lack of attention. And, and then we all know some of those wonderful plotters. They're known for their attention to detail. They're involved in all of the nitty-gritty stuff of life, and they're faithful. Give them a job and come back in 10 years, and they're doing it faithfully. No organization could survive without such faithful staff people. You try to get them excited about some new grandiose plan that you have, and they don't want to hear it. Can't see the forest for the trees. We're busy with our procedures. So, so which kind of person is God? Is God one who governs the universe by his great decrees and leaves the details to us? Or does God lovingly work in the details of the lives of his children, though we may be living in, a, in the midst of a world of somewhat chaos? You know, both of those views of God are, are, are pretty popular in different circles. Well, let's see what our text teaches. This is a story of Joseph continuing here in Genesis 41. When two full years had passed, that is, two full years of uh, prison for Joseph, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river they came up, there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the river bank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy, full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up, and it had been a dream. In the morning his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief upbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was at once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me in the, and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream, and things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was hanged. 
So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. And when he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, In my dream I was standing on the bank of the Nile, when out of the river there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. And after them seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I had never seen such ugly cows in the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first, but even after they ate them, no one could tell they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. And then I woke up. And in my dream I also saw seven heads of grain, full and good, growing on a single stalk. After them seven other heads sprouted, withered and thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. I told this to the magicians, but none of them could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterwards are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance of Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. <laughs> the abundance in the land will not be remembered, because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. Now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials, so Pharaoh asked them, Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge in my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. And he dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in the chariot as his second in command, and men shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word not, no one will lift a hand or foot in all Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphenoth Paneah and gave him Asenoth, daughter of Potipharah, 
priest of On to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the seven years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. By Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It's because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's, and all my father's household. And the second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began. Just as Joseph had said, there was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph and do what he tells you. And when the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was, so, was severe in all the world. Amen. <coughs> well, here are two stories intertwined in this long account, which has a lot of repetition. We hear the dream several times. First of all, there's a big story involving the history of Egypt. And then there's a very personal story, a part of Joseph's life. There's a history lesson with very personal implications. And there's a very personal story with implications for the nation. From these two contrasting facets of this account, I think we learn two lessons about the Lord. And that's the two points I want us to hear this morning. The first is this, that God controls nations to save his people. God controls nations to save his people. We Americans believe in the separation of church and state. We hear it all the time. And, and it's good. The church should not be running the government, and the government should not be running the church. But separation of church and state has now come to mean separation of God and state. There will be no mention, no acknowledgement of God anywhere in the land. And even Christians have sometimes picked up this mindset that God has nothing to do with our national, more secular life. That God must keep his hands off of that. He's confined to work within the area of the church. And then if God has nothing to do with our political and, and, and national life, then certainly he must have nothing to do with the life of other nations, especially communist nations or Islamic nations. But here in Genesis 41, we learn that God sovereignly controls other nations to serve his purpose. Now that's a clear teaching of the Bible, even though we may sometimes forget it. But we read it in Job 12, for example. He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and disperses them. 
And in Psalm 22, dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Or in Daniel 4.25, the Most High is sovereign over the kings of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Or in Acts 17.26, from one man, God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact Places where they should live. God sovereignly controls all the nations of the world. And you see, this is what's going on in this chapter. God is ordering the events not of the nation Israel, his, his, his uh, chosen people here. God is ordering the events of the pagan nation Egypt that did not acknowledge God at all. Had their own gods, thank you. We see that uh, in several ways. See God's hand at work here. First of all, God's pleased to reveal his will to Pharaoh, the pagan king. Pharaoh has these two dreams, dreams that are made up of things that are characteristically Egyptian. The, 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 the animal standing in the water to, to keep cool. The, the, the Sahara desert wind blowing in and withering crops. Those are characteristically uh, Egyptian things. But Pharaoh's interpreters can't decipher these dreams. For they're not dreams that arose out of the human subconscious and the area of the things that they were used to dealing with. Something's different here. And before we just dismiss these magicians, we might remember that in the time of Moses, they did wondrous things. They, they, they mimicked many of the signs that Moses and Aaron brought, but they could make, up, they could make nothing out of these dreams. We see God was speaking to Pharaoh. That's what it says in verses 25 and again in verse 28. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And we ought not be surprised for God is in control of pagan nations. God is working in Egypt to work out his will, not Pharaoh's will. Alan Ross says that, well, God employed such communication to show that no matter how powerful and prosperous these nations were on the face of the earth, they were still subject to his sovereign control. <laughs> then we see God's hand at it in that God provided interpretation and wise counsel for Pharaoh's dream, that Pharaoh might know God's will. In the midst of this crisis, when no one could interpret uh, Pharaoh's dreams, and he was getting upset about it, the cupbearer suddenly remembered Joseph and with pangs of conscience realized he had let Joseph down and forgotten all about him for two years. And so he tells Pharaoh about this Hebrew slave back in the prison. Well, Pharaoh sends for this dream expert with his perfect track record. Oh, but this isn't about Joseph's special abilities. And this isn't about the cupbearer's claims. And Joseph makes that perfectly clear the minute he walks into the king's court. This is about God dealing with Pharaoh. So Joseph says, I can't do this. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he's looking for. And then Joseph proceeded to deliver the interpretation of the dream and some godly advice to go with it. <clears throat> but you see, in all of this, God is controlling the events. God is turning Pharaoh's heart in order to serve God's own purposes. That's what he does. 
And sure enough, then God sent the seven years of plenty just like he said he would. God didn't just communicate information to Pharaoh, and he didn't just interpret the information for his planning purposes. Then God proceeded to control the rain and to control the sun and to bring about seven years of perfect crops, seven years of bounty. And when God said plenty, he meant plenty. We read about it in verses 47 to 49 there. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grain in the fields, uh, surround, the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. God blessed Egypt. Does God do this? Does God bless nations that don't even acknowledge him, that don't even know him? We well, can't if he wants to, because God controls all the nations. But then as God brought seven years of abundance, God also brought the famine right on schedule. It was as if God flipped the switch and disaster came. The rain fall stopped so the Nile didn't flood as necessary and the wind blew in from the desert and the life cycle of Egypt was painfully disrupted and Egypt knew what they had known before famine severe famine Derek Kidner explains how severe a famine could be in Egypt which is a thin fertile strip between deserts is twice indicated by records of its inhabitants resorting to cannibalism. And this was the most severe famine they had known. Ah, but this time, God preserved Egypt in the famine, for Pharaoh had been warned and guided and prospered, so that what should have been a time of disaster for Egypt became a golden opportunity to rise to greatness as they had food and other nations did not. We read about it at the very end of the chapter. Verse 54, there was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. Verse 56, when the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt, and all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the world. Oh, make no mistake, our text is crystal clear that God is moving here. God is controlling the affairs of nations, of the nation Egypt, to bring about God's specific purposes. But why? What are those purposes? What, what is God doing by his sovereign intervention? Well, perhaps surprisingly, God's concern does not appear to be the, the, what our modern concerns tend to be. God does not appear to be concerned to guarantee some baseline of prosperity for all the nations. God does not uh, seem to be concerned to bring about a leveling of the wealth of the rich uh, for the benefit of the poor. Indeed, uh, Egypt was of some of the rich, one of the richest of nations, and now they get richer. 
No, God was using the famine for his own purposes, nor was God uh, using the famine as judgment. It doesn't say that it's judgment on anyone. We're so quick to think we can discern what's God's judgment, but it, this, this doesn't say it's judgment. No, God's intention had to do with God's covenant people, Abraham's descendants. God is ordering the events of the mighty nation Egypt to work out his plan for this little family of his. <coughs> God had promised Abraham the land of Canaan. But he also told Abraham that his descendants would go down in Egypt for 400 years where they would learn to grow as a nation. And now, judging from uh, Judah's uh, compromises that we heard about a few weeks ago, God's people are in danger of being lost, assimilated into the Canaanite culture. And so God goes to great lengths to move them to Egypt. And all of this is part of that plan. He sends Joseph on ahead to prepare a way. And then he sends a famine until they have no food. And finally they flee to Egypt where there's food. And, and, and there they're preserved. Exactly according to God's plan. Joseph himself explains something of God's plan a few chapters later in chapter 45 we read he's talking to his brothers he says do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives <clears throat> that God sent me ahead of you for two years now there's been famine in the land and for the next five years there will not be plowing and reaping but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Here is God moving the nations. Here is God moving nature. Here is God controlling plenty and famine. Here is God speaking and turning the hearts of pagan kings. All for what? To preserve his people. Folks, this isn't an isolated event. We find it throughout the scripture. God raises up the nation Babylon to bring chastening on God's people. And then he raised up the, nation, the Medes and the Persians to, to bring down the Babylonians and restore his people to the land. When Jesus is to be born, God moves the heart of Caesar to, to demand a, a, a registration for taxation purposes. But what it does is it gets Joseph and Mary from Nazareth, their home, over to Bethlehem where the prophet said that the Messiah would be born. God moves nations to work his sovereign will. You see, there's no limit to God's sovereign control of the nations. Nothing is outside of his reach. He uses natural forces. He uses political actions. He uses economic pressures, good leaders, poor leaders, the votes of the people, the forces of injustice. God uses whatever he pleases for everything is in his hand. Indeed, God moves nations to save his people. This morning I call you to see the world through the eyes of God's word. Nothing has escaped his notice. He is sovereignly in control of everything that's going on. Oh, that, that, that doesn't mean his purposes are easy to understand. They're mysterious to us. Who could have imagined that the terrible miscarriage of justice of Pilate declaring a man innocent and then having him executed, who could imagine that such terrible events would bring about the salvation of God's people as Jesus died on the cross. But God was moving governors and kings and nations to do his sovereign will and save his people. That's what God always does. 
Oh, you may not understand what he's doing, but he's not absent and he's not inactive. And he is worthy of your unwavering confidence. Oh, and the blessedness of the realization of such concern by our God that God's purpose in controlling of the nations is to save his people, whose people we are. We who trust in Christ. What a great truth. God's sovereignty and his greatness. But God doesn't just work in the broad canvas of the nations of the world. God also works very personally with us. Which brings us to our second point, and the second part of this story. And that is that God exalts the humble. God exalts the humble. Everyone may love the underdog in a sporting event. But most of our culture is geared to promote the bold and to trample over the humble. And so we concern ourselves with the image we project, try to present ourselves tougher and more competent than we really are. And we cringe at the thought of some humiliating blunder that could just destroy our whole uh, reputation. So we know that the, the confident and the bold and the uh, prosper and the weak and the meek and, uh, and uh, the humble get trampled. That's just how it often is. But God's ways are different than ours. God honors meekness and exalts the humble. That's the consistent testimony of Scripture. Let me read a couple of passages from Psalm 37. The Lord writes to his people, Do not fret because of evil men, be envious of those who do wrong, trust in the Lord, and do good. Dwell in the land, and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. A little while, and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land, and enjoy great peace. God exalts the humble, brings down the bold and arrogant wicked. Or even more pointedly, listen to Jesus' familiar words, the Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You see, this great reversal of fortunes is the pattern of God's kingdom that the last will be first and the first will be last, that God will exalt his humble servants. That's exactly what we have an example of in this passage. That's what happened to Joseph. Joseph, who had been so humiliated until he was left imprisoned, falsely accused, with absolutely no recourse, forgotten even by the friend that he helped, rotting there for a crime he did not commit. 
And now in a sudden reversal is exalted to prominence in Pharaoh's kingdom. F.B. Meyer has a wonderful description of Joseph's exaltation. It's a bit lengthy, but let me read it to you. He says, it was a wonderful ascent, sheer in a single bound from the dungeon to the steps of the throne. Joseph's father had rebuked him. Now Pharaoh, the greatest monarch of the time, welcomes him. Joseph's brothers despised him. Now the proudest priesthood of the world opens its ranks and receives him by marriage into their midst, considering it wiser to conciliate a man who was from that moment to be the greatest force in Egyptian politics and life. The hands that were hard with the toils of a slave are adorned with a signet ring. The feet are no longer tormented with fetters, but a chain of gold is linked around his neck. The coat of many colors torn from him by violence and defiled by blood, and the garment left in the hand of the adulteress are exchanged for vestures of fine linen drawn from the royal wardrobe. He was once trampled upon as the offscouring of all things. Now in all Egypt, now all Egypt is commanded to bow before him as he rides forth in the second chariot, prime minister of Egypt, second only to the king. This isn't a fairy tale. Dr. Bruce Waltke, the Old Testament scholar, reminds us of uh, the account of uh, Ashurbanipal, who follows Egyptian customs when investing Necho as Pharaoh in Egypt. And, he, and, and here's a quote from him. He says, I clad him in a garment with multicolored trimmings, placed a golden chain on him, put golden rings on his hand. I wrote my name upon an iron dagger to be worn in the girdle. I presented him with chariots, Horses and mules as a means of transportation, befitting his, pers- his position as ruler. Well, what happened to Joseph was not a fairy tale. God took his humble servant out of, the de- out of the dungeon and exalted him to the place of Pharaoh, second in command only to Pharaoh. But this wasn't just an external thing. All the trappings of power and authority... God heaping political power on Joseph. No, God had preserved Joseph's soul in humility and now entrusts him with power. We see evidence of Joseph's humility in several places throughout our text. Verse 16, we mentioned already, (coughs) Joseph, (coughs) Joseph is suddenly brought from prison into the Pharaoh's own presence. A, a, a move that would leave most anyone with their head swimming to suddenly be in the king's presence when a few moments ago you were in a dungeon. You are servant in a prison. And yet, uh, as he comes into the Pharaoh's presence, he's not swayed by the power and the position of Pharaoh. So when the ability to, to uh, interpret dreams is attributed to Joseph, he, he immediately begins to correct uh, Pharaoh's theology. I don't, I don't do this. I can't do this. No, God is able to give you the answer. There's a man humble who hasn't forgotten who he is and who he's not. Then we see Joseph's humility in the way he handles the prosperity. You know, it's one thing to be faithful when you don't have any choice. Just uh, everything's against you and there you sit in desperate need. It's one thing to be crying out to God and to be trusting him. But when everything's going well, oh, it's so easy to be full of ourselves. 
Now Joseph, he continues to walk in humility with the Lord. We may see it too in the total absence of any vengeance on the record. Don't you suppose the cupbearer who had forgotten Joseph for two years kind of wondered what was going to happen to him now that suddenly he had to serve Joseph? Can you imagine what it was like for Potiphar and for Potiphar's wife, who had falsely accused Joseph, to now bow as Joseph came by and to wonder what he might do? But there's no record he did anything. Indeed, the way he dealt with his brothers in the later chapter shows only a man full of grace, a man humble before the Lord, recognizing God's sovereign hand in everything. Finally, toward the end of this chapter, Joseph's sons are born. And here we see clearly some of Joseph humbly walking with the Lord still. You see, Joseph had been given a wife whose father was apparently a priest of the sun god Ra, or so his name seems to indicate. And we know that she was from the town of On, which is a town about 10 miles north of Cairo, and was at that time a center of Egyptian sun worship. So when Joseph's uh, sons are born, you might just expect that here's the wife and here's the father-in-law, and of course, that's a very, they're, 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 it's a priestly family, and, and Joseph has been exalted. I mean, who's he? He's nobody, and he's been given this a great position, and he ought to uh, go with the gods of the land. But what does what uh, Joseph do? He gives both of his sons Hebrew names, not Egyptian names. First, he names Manasseh, which means forget, a name that praises God from delivering him from the pain of the troubles that he had had for the family. And then he names his second son Ephraim, a, a, a word which means fruitful, and praises God for the new blessings that God has heaped upon him in this land where he's now been sent. Oh, you see, even through all these difficulties, in adversity and now in prosperity, Joseph remains humble before the Lord, and the Lord exalts this humble servant. In this sense, Joseph is a picture of Christ for us, who was humiliated for our salvation and is now exalted at the Father's right hand. Oh, there's so many parallels. We've talked about this before, but let me just mention a few. Joseph was rejected by his brothers, and Jesus was too, rejected by his Jewish kinsmen, his own family. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers for 20 pieces of silver. Jesus was betrayed for the price of a slave. Joseph was imprisoned with two criminals, uh, uh, one of whom was restored and one who was not. Jesus was crucified between two criminals, one who repented and one who did not. Joseph, though rejected by his own people, rose to rule a Gentile nation. Jesus, though rejected by his own people, now rules all nations and calls Gentiles to his kingdom. Joseph, who had been so despised and rejected when exalted, deserved the honor of every knee bowing as he went throughout Egypt. And Jesus, once despised and rejected, is now at the Father's right hand in glory, and before him every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Indeed, in the famine-parched desert which Egypt and the world became, the only hope for food was 
to quote in verse 55, go to Joseph and do whatever he tells you. And in this sin-parched world where death prevails, the only hope for life is to go to Jesus and do whatever he tells you. For he is the bread of life. Eat and live. You see, what was played out in the life of Joseph has now come to be an even greater reality in the person of the Lord Jesus. God exalts his humble servant and that's our only hope. All our labor can never pay the price of our sin. Our hope is that in Christ's humiliation, it's been paid. And all of our self-help can never exalt us to eternal life. Our only hope is that we're raised with Christ, whom God exalted. Lord, I call you to humble yourself and entrust yourself to the Lord Jesus, who alone uh, can give us life. But as we trust him, Joseph's humility also becomes a model for how we live out the life of faith. It doesn't just drive us to Christ who was humiliated and exalted for us, but it also provides us a model of what it looks like to live for Christ. And we're rightfully spring-loaded to emphasize that God's covenant is all grace. We don't deserve it. It's all grace. And that certainly is true. Apart from God's grace, we're outsiders. We have no hope. But in our zeal to preserve the graciousness of grace, we sometimes talk as if it doesn't matter what we do then. Do what you please because God is full of grace. No, that's not true. The Bible clearly says that God exalts his humble servants. He blesses his faithful servants. Indeed, this is the very nature of God's covenant. He sets before his people promises of blessing and calls us to faithfulness. And he also sets before us promises of cursing and warns us against turning away in unbelief and disobedience. Well, it's not that we can be saved by our works, but it is very true that the faith that saves us is a humble faithfulness that submits itself to God and walks in his way. You see, Joseph was exalted because God was with him. God lavished his grace upon him. But it's also true to say Joseph was exalted because he walked faithfully and humbly before God. We may not be able to reconcile in our minds the, the absolute graciousness of God and and, and the human responsibility that God has, has uh, uh, established, but both are true. God saves Joseph by his grace, but it's also right to say that God saved Joseph by his faithfulness. Those are not contradictions. So this morning I hold before you Joseph. As not just one who points us to Christ, but as a model of what it means to trust and obey Christ. What it means to walk in covenant faithfulness. That which God expects of you and me as well. Meekness when oppressed. But relentless in faith. That's what it means. Humility when exalted. But an unwavering loyalty to our God. In short, keeping the faith. 
keeping faith with the Lord through all the dizzying changes and reversals of life, always confident that God exalts the humble. I will be faithful to him. So, is uh, God one who rules the great affairs of the universe, the nations of the world, or is God one who concerns himself with the daily struggles of his people? Yes, yes, isn't he? Both. God controls nations to serve his people. And don't point down from the throne. Don't act as if he's your personal little companion. He's the God of the nation. But God's not at a distance watching dispassionately. He hears the cries of his suffering children, and God exalts the humble who trust in him. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word, for this uh, wonderful story that we read of your working in Egypt and in the life of Joseph. Thank you, Lord, that you're the same God. Though we don't understand always what's going on in our day and what you're doing in our lives, we thank you that you've not changed. So teach us to trust you and to be faithful as Joseph was faithful, to be faithful as Jesus was faithful in our place. And thank you, Lord, for that certain confidence, that certain hope of salvation that we have in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.